0: During this podcast, we'll discuss drug shortages with the FDA's Captain Valerie Jensen. Captain Jensen, welcome to the program. Thank you, David. Captain Jensen's bio is, of course, posted on the podcast website. On background, in late October, the FDA released a congressionally mandated report titled Drug Shortages, Root Causes, and Potential Solutions. The 124-page report found drug shortages are increasing persistent, i.e. the duration longer, some as long as eight years, with both the intensity and public impact high. Drugs in shortage are moreover generics and sterile injectables in all treatment categories, including anesthesia, cardiovascular care, emergency care, infectious diseases, and pain management. These shortages can, the FDA found, quote-unquote, have a devastating effect by prolonging patients' suffering contributing to disease progression and increased morbidity. Managing drug shortages drives up hospital labor costs, the cost of providing substitute drugs, and or paying higher prices for drugs in shortage to well over half a million dollars annually. Concerning root causes, the FDA found market consolidation has caused current contracting practices to constitute, in some, a race to the bottom. For example, consolidation has led to market or pricing failure that ignores... Recognizing manufacturing investment requirements, capacity constraints, and oftentimes uncertain demand exacerbated by an increasingly chaotic, non transparent global supply chain. The FDA also found the market fails to recognize or reward manufacturers for mature quality management systems. 62% of drug shortages between 13 and 17 were the result the FDA found of manufacturing quality problems. And found a market that is enabled to quickly recover after disruption in either manufacturing or supply chain distribution. Despite the worsening drug shortage problem, the Congress's intense and the Congress's rather intense focus on drug pricing this year, not a single drug shortage hearing was held this congressional session. Listeners may recall I posted on August 9th a related essay on this topic I wrote for STAT. With me again to discuss the drug shortage problem, and potential solutions is the FDA's Captain Valerie Jensen. So with that uh, as background, Captain Jensen, although your bio will be posted on the podcast website, can you briefly provide for me your uh, title and your job responsibility? Sure. Um, This is Captain Valerie Jensen, and I am the Associate Director
1: for Drug Shortages at FDA. And so what that means, what that job entails, is that um, I lead a, a very, very dedicated staff um, here in FDA, um, and our our primary purpose is to mitigate and prevent drug shortages, and we've actually been in existence for the last 20 years, um, since Y2K, when there was a, a thought that there would be shortages due to um, computer glitches, and although that never panned out, we were you know, concerned as an agency about shortages that we knew were occurring and, and wanted to have processes and policies in place to deal with those. And so we've developed those over the years. We've, um, we have, we have, as I said, there are about 25 people working on a shortage at any given time, so we take this extremely seriously. It's, it's um, a very dedicated program. And so I lead that program and our, our, we continue to, to work on all, all possible ways to, to resolve this problem of drug shortages.
0: Okay, thank you. Before we get into the report, let me ask. Also, uh, a question about, if you can give me an overview of your day-to-day activities, you note that uh, this issue has been of concern for 20 years. In 2012, uh, there was the FDA Safety Innovation Act that expanded requirements on reporting shortages, created a task force. There was other related, uh, or legislation related to this issue in 16 and the PDUFA in 17. But all that aside, and again, uh, could you give us some idea of your uh, day-to-day activities in trying to manage or, or reduce the shortage problem?
1: Yes, absolutely. So as you mentioned, in 2012
0: was really our first piece
1: of legislation for, for shortage management, and that was um, the first time that re- manufacturers were ever required to notify FDA if there was going to be some type of disruption in supply. So before that time, what would happen is if we would find out about the shortage after the drug was no longer available at the pharmacy, so patients were being impacted already. That's m- way too late to have any type of mitigation effect, obviously, and it's it's also it's too late for us in a lot of ways. We really need to have some time to be able to use the tools that we have available to us, and so um, I'll mention what those tools are. And so, when when to, in 2012, when we have had that notification requirement um, put into effect. What that does is gives it tells manufacturers that they absolutely have to let us know as soon as they know that there's going to be a supply disruption. And then we can use the tools that we have, and, and those include not only working with that particular manufacturer that's experiencing a problem. So if they have a problem, say, with their manufacturing line or something going wrong with the product, then we can help to help them. So we actually will consult our internal experts. So we have chemists, we have microbiologists, we have um, a large number of staff that we have on call for these issues, and we can actually assist the firm in resolving the issue. We can also work with other manufacturers. So, if it's in some of these older generics, um, especially the injectable drugs that um, are what we commonly see in shortage, that's that's really our highest risk group so group of drugs that are that go into shortage. Um, a lot of times, these are sterility issues that occur, or particulate or particles inside the vials. Um, that can't be there because these are IV drugs, injectable drugs that are um, going to go into a patient. So those types of issues we can help to mitigate. Um, And we can also work with the other manufacturers. So if there are other manufacturers manufacturers making those same drugs, um, we can work with them. And so if they can ramp up, if they can increase production, um, we'll help with that as far as anything that they need. So if they need another line or another site, um, another raw material supplier, API supplier, will help expedite that. So those types of um, activities are going on constantly. We're always having submissions or supplements um, being submitted to help prevent shortages, and and we absolutely expedite those. The other um, area where we've really had to increase our efforts is when we don't have an option. So we don't have another manufacturer that's willing or able to to make that drug, and we've got a critical shortage. Um, and, And in that case, we've had to... Um, use temporary importations. So what we do is we evaluate a drug that's manufactured um, in another country, approved in another country, um, and being used in patients overseas. And we evaluate that product um, for use in the US market. We make sure the labeling and the formulation and everything associated with that drug um, isn't going to cause a problem for US patients. And so we um, allow that product to come into the US until the shortage is resolved. And that's, that's really been utilized a, a large number of times, especially in the past few years. Um, so those are really the tools that we have available and, and what we're doing every day and, and, and continue to do.
0: Okay, thank you. You did note uh, API, so just to make yeah. clear, that's the active uh, pharmaceutical ingredient, correct?
1: That's right, and and that um, is not a very large, um, you know, not a very huge significant reason for shortages. It, it could, it but if there is an API manufacturer that's having problems, a problem there is that it could be infecting a number of finished product manufacturers because a lot of times the active pharmaceutical ingredient company makes that active ingredient makes various active ingredients for a lot of different finished product companies. So that can be a, a big issue.
0: Okay, I actually did have an API question uh, on the list here, so let's go uh, to the report again. Out October 31st. Uh, It's a lengthy report. It makes uh, three uh, substantive recommendations. Uh, You did just discuss your um, work, including reporting activities. One of the recommendations, or the first, is to improve uh, drug shortage uh, reporting. And although uh, I found that insightful, um, let's go to the two other uh, recommendations. Uh, So the first, and not in priority order here, but the first, or the second of the three, is the FDA has recommended uh, contracting changes. So can you explain uh, what some of these are or how contracting uh, can be improved?
1: Yeah, and, and I'll, I'll say that really the contracting areas and, and the relationships between the pairs, the purchaser, purchasers, and um, group purchasing organizations, all of that is really outside the purview of FDA. Um, however, it is something as we... Um, had our, our so the the task force that um, was responsible for um, development of this report, I, I was a member of that, and that was led by our commissioner's office. And it was commissioned that task force was commissioned by Dr. Gottlieb, our former commissioner, and um, really we were looking at um, you know everything that the large economic landscape here. And so we brought in outside stakeholders and and had multiple listening sessions as well as as you know a public meeting. Um, last November, and so all of that information that we gained from that public meeting as well as from all of the listening sessions and all of the um, submissions to our Federal Register um, notice docket, and so all of that was was um, gathered and evaluated and analyzed, and so these are the recommendations that came out of that, and so what what led to that um, recommendation about contracting was that that was what we were really hearing, especially from manufacturers, that. Um, contracting um, has led them to that drive to the bottom that they um, a, a lot of times that they cannot make a profit from these older sterile injectables and they, and they do um, attribute that to the contracting practices. So I think it's something that really needs to be explored further. It's not something really FDA um, has the purview to explore, but it's something that um, we keep hearing that needs to be looked at.
0: Okay, thank you. I'm glad uh, you mentioned a GPO's um, Group purchasing organizations, you do note in the report, part of the market failure is a result of, as you note in the document, the four largest GPOs account for 90 percent of the U.S. market for medical uh, supplies. Just amongst other comments made about contracting changes, uh, there is um, the note made that manufacturers be rewarded for mature quality management. And we'll get to that as another recommendation. Um, the recommendation long-term purchasing contracts be encouraged or mandated and that these low price clauses where say for example the GPO could uh, not purchase if they find a lower priced manufacturer and therefore compromise the sales um, of the higher priced uh, manufacturer all those were discussed and I do appreciate you making note of the fact that the FDA really has no authority uh, to uh, at least mandate how uh, these contracts contracts rather, are uh, negotiated. But let's go. I think the primary or overarching recommendation of the three in this report is that uh, the FDA recommends a manufacturing quality rating system that potentially would allow top-rated producers to charge a premium or sustainable or higher uh, and therefore sustainable prices. So could you explain how this would work, creating a rating system? Yeah, I
1: think <laughs> That, that will really need to be explored again. I think it's, it's something that we continue to hear that, you know, it, it's, it's different with a pharmaceutical than it is with buying, you know, something, a commodity, other commodities. And so when you're buying a pharmaceutical from a, a specific manufacturer, you haven't really as a consumer or, or pharmacy buyer um, or a hospital, you really don't know the quality of that product versus others on the market. So, that's been a common complaint and a common um, concern, really, from the healthcare community and from the um, from hospitals, that that they would like to have a way to know um, the quality of that of that product versus the others. And of course, if it's FDA approved, we would have to, you know, the the drug itself um, is going to work the way it's supposed to work. If that's why it's on the market. But I think what they're what what people would like to know is the manufacturing site. So what are the risks, you know, at that site that have been you know, what, what's able to be known about the sites, the manufacturing sites itself. And so helping them to make buying decisions based on quality, that's really what, um, and again, this came out of all of the messages that we heard from all outside stakeholders. So it's something that really needs to be looked at.
0: Okay, thank you. Let me, let me um, go to some related or attendant issues. So I did note uh, in the introduction there is this supply chain Uh, issue or concern, uh, because now these um, APIs are manufactured around the world um, in remote locations, etc. So the report notes um, uh, the drug supply chain has become dispersed or longer and more complex. Uh, For example, you note that 88 percent of manufacturing sites making these APIs, active pharmaceutical ingredients, are located overseas and we know many of these APIs are manufactured in China in India, well, that makes uh, both enforcing quality manuf- uh, management and manufacturing and coordinating across these the entire supply chain uh, difficult. Some observers or s- scholars uh, in this subject area have suggested that the A- FDA consider or the FDA recommend repatriating uh, manufacturing of at least these injectables of biosimilars since, as you suggested, they account for 60% of drug shortages and are far and away more or the most difficult to manufacture. So in the preparation of this report, was there any discussion uh, about how the FDA might get a better handle on the supply chain, knowing, of course, right now the FDA has really no ability uh, to manipulate it? Yeah, and you bring up a good
1: point. I think that's being talked about a lot as far as... um, Visibility into the supply chain—who's supplying what um, and what volumes—and and that type of thing. I think that um, you know, obviously, we we can't control which manufacturer or which API a, a particular company is using, and if they decide to go overseas, you know, that's that's not anything FDA um, has any control over as far as which API suppliers they're choosing. Um, what we require, obviously, is quality, so we we do inspect all API suppliers. Um, for all finished products. So those, those do get inspected. they have to meet our standards no matter where they're located. Um, and I think um, you do bring up a good point though as far as um, supply chain vulnerability and looking at um, you know how much is being used at specific sites and what are the risks of those sites. And I think that's another area that really needs to be um, further investigated.
0: I do have uh, so two related questions to this. Uh, the report notes it takes, three to five years to repair a drug application for FDA approval. But the report also concluded that these ANDAs, or abbreviated new uh, drug approval, application approvals rather, ANDAs, were not the problem because the FDA, you found that three out of the five ANDAs did not result in uh, the drug going to market. Uh, So the FDA was making timely ANDA approvals, um, but the manufacturers who obtained the approval, or three out of five of these, were not taking the approval to the extent that they then manufactured uh, the product to market. Um, so here's an out-of-the-box question, possibly. Has the FDA given any consideration to allowing, and this would be regulated, of course, the sale of a manufacturer uh, to sell a new uh, drug approval application uh, to another manufacturer if, having received the ANDA, they decide actually not to produce the product for market.
1: Yeah, and, and you're right. That is um, That was a surprising finding that when we looked at, um, well, actually our, our economist team um, did that analysis and, and found that, um, you know, ANDAs, that this was happening, that um, ANDAs, even though they were expedited, were not getting um, going to market. And so, um, it, you know, that would require legislation. FDA obviously does not have um, any control over whether a company decides to market or not mm-hmm. and um, you know we, what we do understand with these are these are usually those in that same group that we've been talking about of older sterile injectables and so it goes back again to um, why are these not profitable why is it not um, you know why is it not profitable for them to enter that market and, and looking at incentives for, for them possibly entering and, and again that would require legislation as well
0: okay thank you there are any number I noticed in the report of Mentions, not recommendations, but at least recognition of any number of other uh, solution possibilities, and I'll just read a, a few of these, and these are pretty standard in the literature, so better risk uh, management planning by manufacturers uh, to account for potential and disruption, or plan for potential disruption in manufacturing, stockpiling is frequently mentioning, and lengthening expiration dates for these drugs. Um, to what extent uh, were these considered as recommendations, or why were they not uh, included in in the recommendation set? Um, so I, I'll, I'll start with so the risk
1: management plan. Um, again, so that is something that we've you know we've continued to talk about here at the agency. Um, having firms have plans in place and having redundancy, having um, you know, a contingency plan if something were to go wrong. And and what really brought that to light was when um, the hurricane um, in Puerto Rico, Hurricane Maria, in 2017. So the impact that that had and and the fact that there really, you know, some firms had contingency plans, some didn't. And so um, looking into that further is is something we've really um, concentrated on. And so we actually do, we're, we're planning a draft guidance, a guidance that will be coming out soon, um, encouraging firms to have those plans and what should be considered for those plans, and so that's that's something we absolutely continue to to um, encourage. And then, as far as stockpiles, I think it's something that would have to be investigated further. You know, there are many difficulties um, associated with knowing what to stock and what, how much to stock, and um, you know what what how, how to distribute and and the access issues. Um, so that's something again, further exploration is needed. And then. Expiration dating is something that we um, so we encourage during a shortage, if a company um, is able to support additional stability, additional dating for their, their drug that is in shortage, we encourage them to submit that data to us. And what we do is we post the additional dating on our website. So we review it. We review their stability data. We, um, Our chemists, um, as long as it's acceptable, we go ahead and post the lot numbers and the new dating on our site. And so that's really been able to help hospitals be able to conserve and be able to use products um, past their dating. And so I think looking at whether there could be um, more of a, um, you know, that could be used more broadly, I think that's something we want to encourage firms to do. So, um, again, those are things that we're still looking at.
0: Okay, thank you. I I have to ask uh, your view. I'm sure you're well aware of Civica RX. There's also Provide RX, GX, rather. Uh, So these are companies... Um, not-for-profits that have been recently formed. They have um, hospitals who are there in their membership, and the idea here is that these organizations would um, begin to manufacture, with, of course, FDA approval, uh, drugs in shortage. To what extent has the FDA uh, been involved in, in assisting beyond sorry, your regulatory uh, role and requirement as uh, Civica providing and any of these others to be successful. Yeah, so I I think all of these efforts
1: are, are, you know, they sound very promising. And I think, so what, you know, when we've communicated with these groups, what we let them know is if they are interested in in acquiring um, either someone else's application or they're coming forward with a new application for any drug that's either in shortage or um, at risk for shortage, maybe it's a sole source um, drug or something that um, has had past shortages, um, anything related to those types of um, products, we will expedite. So we tell these groups to, to let us know when they're um, interested in acquiring one of those products and, and coming to us with a submission that they, they request expedited review, and, and that will be granted for, for medically necessary drugs that, um, that meet those criteria.
0: Okay, and let's, let's, let's move to, um, again, this report was mandated by a good number of uh, Senate and House members Uh, About 18 months ago, I believe it was June of 18, um, I did note in the opening that there have been, interestingly, I could find no uh, drug shortage hearings held uh, this session of this Congress. Um, So my question is, uh, now that the report's been filed uh, or forwarded to the Congress, what's your understanding of the response to the report? Or more specifically, do you anticipate a hearing or you're having to provide testimony at some point concerning the findings of the report?
1: Yeah, I, I really I can't foresee what will happen. I think, um, you know, if, if there is, we're glad to talk. Uh, obviously, we are, we are ready to talk about the findings and, um, you know, what we think will, will be the solution.
0: Okay, thank you. Just I'll make quick mention, there has been several um, related uh, legislative provisions proposed. You may know H.R. 3, the House Drug Pricing Bill, has a provision to temporarily increase payment for certain biosimilars. There is the Colin Smith uh, Meds Act. Uh, on the House side, there's the Star Act. Grassley, in his Prescription Drug Pricing Reduction Act, Section 112, has an increased reimbursement for biosimilars. So there is related uh, drug shortage of policy proposal. Though considering where we are on the session, it doesn't appear any of this is going to move uh, any time uh, soon, Let me ask you, other than your day-to-day uh, responsibilities, what do you anticipate next uh, relative to um, actions uh, the FDA will take? I, I, I was encouraged by your just mention of draft guidance relative to risk management planning, but there are, are there other initiatives to try to uh, delve deeper into solving this problem?
1: Yeah, can I can comment on um, another guidance that we will have, and and that's really meant for um, industry. Again, so they um, we do get notifications, as you know. Um, sometimes those notifications are lacking in the information that that you know absolutely would be helpful, such as the actual cause of what what is causing the shortage, um, as well as um, better idea of duration. Um, and so there are multiple. Um, you know, parts to notification that we'd really like to have and, and be able to share with the public whenever possible as well, so that um, it helps not only us with our mitigation efforts and knowing which particular strategies to employ and, and you know how long what how long is this going to last and what, what um you know what do we need to get to, to get this result, um, but also it'll help if we can get more information to the public on our website. Um, we believe that's also helpful.
0: Okay, uh, thank you. I I'll throw one last question. And I know this is is a difficult question, but I I think I should ask. So in my opening, uh, I quoted uh, the report uh, where it said, quote-unquote, the FDA observed, because of the shortage, increased morbidity. But the report makes no mention of the effect on mortality. So has there been any effort uh, made to try to assess uh, the effect this has on uh, premature death?
1: Yeah, I think
0: the the, um,
1: answer to that is we just don't get that information. I think that, um, you know, I I think knowing, you know, that that the impact of shortages, we know that it's affecting patients. We know it's affecting patient care. Um, You know, we continue to hear daily about the shortage impact, but but actually knowing, you know, what, you know... uh, as you said, I think I think just having much more um, specifics is is helpful for for people to know how much this is impact, impacting our our care.
0: Okay, um, I did want to ask that question. So, with that overview, uh, uh, Captain Jensen, I appreciate uh, the discussion. I I do hope uh, the report is is read widely on the Hill. Uh, I certainly hope for some uh, hearings. I would think at least Grassley's Finance Committee. Uh, would pursue this uh, next session. So let's let's hope for that. So with that, Captain Jensen, again, I appreciate your time. Thank you for the overview. You're welcome. You have just heard another edition of the Healthcare Policy Podcast hosted by David Intricasso. To comment on this program or others, to see information about upcoming interviews, to suggest a program topic, or to hear an archive program, please visit our website, thehealthcarepolicypodcast.com. Thank you for listening and please listen again
1: soon.